0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteinagogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein a Go Go. You are listening to Three Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane in the studio. With me is Dr. Linden. How are you going?
1: I'm well, Dr. Shane. Always happy to be here, speaking science on a Sunday morning.
0: Yeah, <laughs> perky. And speaking of perky, Chris Hello! KP, which Hello. haven't seen you in a while. It does seem like it's been a while. Yeah, we try and stretch it out so it's as far well, apart as well, possible. But well, it, it, keeps, it keeps it fresh for me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Linden smells like the beach. She's oh just yeah, this time
1: three hours ago I was walking along the beach in yeah. uh, Ocean Grove, and now I'm here. Wow! Oh, no. yeah. yeah. I know. It's one of my favourite beaches. It was beautiful.
2: The winds a cracker. They it were, was
1: beautiful, but there actually wasn't a lot of swell. I should have listened to Radio Marinara to check the the forecast. Oh. There was not a lot of not a lot of surfing to be done. A lot of paddle boarding mm. instead.
0: So you've done a bit of driving this morning. Yes. Yeah.
1: But I wasn't going to miss out on this. I was going to miss out me, on today's show. It reminds
0: me of that Seinfeld episode where Kramer had that cologne idea of the smell of the beach. Do you remember that?
2: <laughs> I takes me all, back. I've always thought if you could, uh, in the right context, this is where smell matters, if you could get, uh, I reckon, the smell of raisin toast.
1: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>
2: I'm telling you, I'd... I would uh yeah, it would it would change my mood. But well, you
1: can't do that, can't you? Doesn't Subway bottle their fresh cookie smell?
0: Not as a they? cologne. Is that right? no,
1: not as a
2: cologne, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Although you can just an atomizer away, I suppose. So,
0: so you just walk through a train station making people feel hungry. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually come to think of it. It could ruin people's days. That <laughs> <laughs> <It> was never <nothing laughs> my ruin- intention, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's some science behind that. We have got some science for you though, folks. We're gonna be talking about uh, nuclear. All things nuclear today, including some of the um, Fukushima work and so forth, which will be very, very interesting. A bit of a themed show. But before we do that, we've got some news for you. Dr. Linden. start with you.
1: Yeah, so I knew that we were going to be talking about nuclear disasters today, and I thought I might bring something that I imagined was the opposite of that, which was staying alive and Mm, puppy dogs. (laughs) Yay! (laughs)
0: So, okay,
1: I just yeah. sort of thought we're going to be talking about... Did you
0: just Google those two things like, and then find, <laughs> Maybe. Some, find some news? That Maybe I
1: Google imaged cute puffy dogs <laughs> and staying alive. Uh, got some BG results that I didn't expect. <laughs> no, this is a paper that mm-hmm. came out this week. I'm not sure if you saw it. It sort of made nope. the rounds uh, in the mainstream media a bit. This a meta-analysis that was published by the American Heart Association looking at... The role of dogs in people's health so we know that having pets is good for us from a mental health point of view reduces stress uh, lowers our our blood pressure even having crickets one study found that people living in an aged care facility were less stressed if they had to look after crickets it doesn't have to be dogs just having any kind of invertebrates are fine invertebrates are fine yep doesn't matter they don't have to be cuddly just having something to look after crickets yeah having maybe something to talk to that doesn't talk back to you can be really good for you but whether a pet can help with your kind of physical health was something that has been studied a lot but the results were a little bit inconclusive so this meta-analysis I suppose it was published on Tuesday looked at 10 studies that had been done over the last 70 years uh, from a bunch of different places the US, the UK, Canada, Scandinavia, New Zealand, Australia and if you add up all the participants it was almost 4 million people involved in these studies Mm. that were analysed, Mm. and they have found that if you have a pet, all these kind of studies suggest if you have a pet, then there's a 24% reduction in your risk of dying.
0: Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that bit.
1: Mm. And this, like, the <laughs> yeah. reason, yeah. the reason yeah. that I, and actually, it's further. It's I think it's thirty one percent if you have already had a stroke or some cardiovascular right. issues, and then you have a pet. This
2: is what I was going to ask. Is there when they say a, a whatever reduction, mm. uh, a twenty four percent reduction in in likeliness of likelihood of death, likeliness like that, yeah, of death. Yeah. Any particular kind of death? I mean, you're not invincible at this point. No,
1: this is when I was thinking about this and I wrote it down. 24% reduction in your likelihood of dying for any reason. Kind of makes it sound like <laughs> having a pet makes you immortal. That's not what the study is saying. Mm. I think it just uh, reduces the risk, I yes, suppose. But this is, this is the
0: difference between correlation and causation. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, So that's it why says people who have pets are more likely to, for example... Jog more. Yes. Right. There, there is probably a correlation there yeah. because they walk their dogs. Mm-hmm. Not me. And people who jog more. Are less likely to get heart disease. Exactly. So the correlation between yep. you know pets and is not direct.
1: No, no, no. And that's it's, why this study like it's
0: activity based. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And there's a lot of other things around it. Like you can't do that kind of a, a causation. We found an association, yeah. but can you say you, having a pet makes you
0: live longer? Yeah, no, not no, really. No, no. But
2: what you could do though is you could, if you're an insurance agency, you could ask, "Do you own pets?" Yeah. And if you say yes, okay, I'm going to lower your premiums. I don't care the, well, that the pets don't make the difference.
0: Yeah, that's what actuaries do. They they do those sorts of um, calculations.
1: Do they? They assess the... the how many dogs you've got? Well,
0: well I, I don't know whether they do dogs, but they they certainly <laughs> do everything. Uh, you know, the, the reason the actuary you know has to be so good at maths is because they are able to calculate insurance premium. Yeah. So the risk factors mm. are based on all of these different actually, parameters. That would be a really interesting study, actually, whether the number of pets has any correlation
2: to if it longevity. Gets to too many, it starts mm-hmm. to be 30, stressful. Thirty cats <laughs> and I'm losing my mind. they
1: did find actually there was two studies published in the same journal in the same week, and they did. Find Find that the results are best if you live alone. So people who live alone and get a pet, uh, really? yeah, it's it's much more beneficial for them, I okay. suppose, because if they've got, you know, nobody yeah, and then, sure. and then yeah. someone to to have a chat with. But like you say, there's there's so many. Uh, Co variables yes. there, like people who have yeah. pets are generally because a pet's not a cheap investment, a cheap no. commitment. Good point. So they generally are uh, h- h- slightly wealthier. Maybe they live in a slightly bigger space because they can have so, a dog. So is your,
0: is your message to the world get rid of your partner, buy a Labrador, <laughs> and live forever? Is that. It makes a lot of sense. That's,
1: that's, not, that's not what the study found, Dr. Shane. Um, that's not what the study is suggesting. Uh, and it's not suggesting that you should just go and get a pet instead yeah. of taking yeah. your yeah. heart medication. But yeah. this is the biggest study to date that's pulling together all this information saying, we think that pets are good for you,
2: I suppose. I just, I just yeah. had an image in my mind then of a St. Bernard carrying two containers of heart medication
0: around his neck. absolutely. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's <laughs> silver around his neck with a syringe. It seems
0: unsafe. <laughs> you think you're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, like it. I like it. Or you could really train up some crickets. They can carry a yeah, large amount true. of mass. That's true, yep. In Very yeah. quickly, too. Yeah, and there's lots of them. You could, yeah. And if they don't perform well as pets, they're a great source of protein. I was That's just true. about to say yeah. that. Yeah, they're <laughs>
1: yeah. quite a good snack on waffles.
0: <laughs> Chocolate coated. We digress. Oh,
2: uh, yes. Chris KP. Speaking of eating crickets uh, and in fact dogs, um, I was uh, I was that struck. That's
1: not what we were speaking <laughs> and, about, Chris. And I don't well, see how that could it, possibly not, be not a segue. Not eating segway. dogs.
2: No, no, I mean eating crickets and dogs is a separate thing. No. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Right. Although, no, I was struck by an article um, uh, from, uh, from what well, came from uh, research done by Tel Aviv University where they have, they've been looking at uh, remains of Paleolithic people in caves and what they've found is that, see so you find stuff left in a cave Now, if you just pause, imagine if someone found your house 400,000 years into the future the stuff that's preserved, what could they learn from you? Now some of the time you sort of go, they would misunderstand that. You know, that thing, that's not really yeah. what it was like. It was washing day. Normally I'm much more tidy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I didn't get a chance to go to the shop. I don't <laughs> exactly. always eat pizza every day yeah, exactly. for a week.
2: <laughs> Precisely, yeah, exactly. So Sounds like you, they know, you
0: nailed. <laughs> yeah, but, they, but they would still
2: interpret it. But there are other things they they would totally nail. That, Or maybe they just nail it in ways that you wouldn't like them to nail it. But what these guys have found is that they, they found that... Uh, there were bits of body part of animal, like deer parts in the cave, which is no surprise because they ate deer. What was surprising was the particular parts and the state they found them in. So what they found is that go, you'd go out hunting, you'd hunt a deer, and you'd rip all the sort of the, the nice bits, the, you know the, the, the bits you wanted, the meat, mm. the, the fat, that kind of stuff, you'd sort of rip that off. If you didn't eat, you'd leave it there. Um, You'd take bits of it back, you know, you know, in various forms. But then there were some specific parts, in particular, metapodial bones, which are out of the limbs, the ends of the limbs of the the deer. They were they were finding them stored, so cut up very neatly and stored, and not just stored, but stored underneath skin, so actually actually covered up like glad wrap, you know, Paleolithic style,
1: like beeswax wraps. Yeah, kind of. yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: So they'd basically find that all stored away in a corner, and what they were realizing is that inside these bones. There's bone marrow, which A, mm. is very nutritious, B, is quite yummy, yeah. um, and C, can <clears throat> last for quite some time if you treat it the right way. Right. So what these guys are doing is essentially making cuppa soup before it was trendy. They were basically just keeping it all stored away for up to nine weeks. I'm not quite sure how they worked uh, that how bit How did out. they know that? Yeah, yeah, don't know that bit. I'm not sure there was a best before date. <laughs> but apparently up to nine weeks um, inside these bones because the other stuff doesn't keep as well. The muscle you kind of got to deal with pretty yeah. quickly. The fat can go a bit wrong pretty quickly, but this stuff can last for ages if you take care of it. So, yeah, preserving bone marrow for future consumption, which is a very smart move when your next meal could be much harder to get. Very oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. And did they
1: preserve it in... You know, the large bone size. You said they had kind of prepared it a bit. Did they cut them up into individual portions? I don't know what they
2: individualized, but they, they could identify when they, how they were cut. This is not just hacking an animal to death or cutting it into pieces for no reason. This is cutting it into specific parts. Now, whether it was portion sized, I don't know, but you'd think they could. You'd think and you'd maybe think it think wouldn't be, last
1: quite as long. But maybe though. you could
2: reuse the hollow bones too. I mean, yeah. I don't know this. I'm just thinking if you cleaned the marrow, out, the marrow
0: out and cleaned it out, it's still a vessel that yeah. stuff could be put in. So yeah. maybe. Huh. Bite size. Interesting. Very nice. Mm, yes. it's making me, for some reason, think of crayfish legs, but oh. quite small. Yeah, small. Yes, but tasty. they're but they're good for keeping things in. Yeah, you crayfish, use for example. Them as... <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, okay, I wanted to just mention something that this this is something we've been talking about for a while, but I thought I'd throw in some uh, additional information. That's the James Webb Telescope, which oh, yes. we keep hearing about yes, it yes, going yes. up, but it keeps getting delayed. There's been a lot. Of, you know, there's been some financial issues. There's been some technical issues. And it's sort of, uh, unfortunately, we're no longer in a position because the space shuttle program's not functioning anymore uh, to service the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm. So, if the Hubble Space Telescope had a floor tomorrow, it's, it's game over. And, you know, it's been up there for over two decades now. So, it's, it's done a pretty amazing job and it's still sending back new data. It's still being used. It's really effective. But Hubble mainly views things in the visible, so, in the same range of wavelengths that we see. Mm. The James Webb Telescope will look in the infrared. Now, there's a really interesting reason as to why this is so sort of pertinent for us, and that is visible light out in space doesn't manage to get through dust clouds, and there's a lot of dust clouds out in the universe. And so if what you're looking for or what you're trying to look at is behind a dust cloud, something like the Hubble or all the ground-based telescopes that we have, all the optical telescopes, just won't help Mm. you. And so you you need something like the web telescope which looks in the infrared and infrared light manages to go through the dust clouds and the one of the areas that we're you know particularly interested in is the center of our own galaxy so there's there's you know in Sagittarius A there is a which is the center of our galaxy there is a monstrous black hole like and when i say monstrous i mean 4 million times the size of our sun in terms of mass that That's is a, ridiculous isn't it so just just pause for a second. Get your head around that number: four I million times the size of our sun.
1: I don't think I can.
0: <laughs> well, I can't. Tell it to uh, me in MCGs. I don't. Yeah. Uh, I don't
1: understand what okay. that means.
0: It's. Uh, I'm just going to use the word bucket load. It's a technical <laughs> term. A bucket load of MCGs. Okay, right, you got right, that. Yep. Um, so anyway, the the interesting thing is, is we can't see the centre of our galaxy. There, we can't see that black hole because there's a lot of dust surrounding it, so we can't see through that. That, that um that cloud and there's so much interesting stuff going on around this black hole so for example we know that there is a huge number of stars around the black hole mm. and if you think about this, these things, you know every now and then you hear about a, an extra, uh, extra solar planet that's been found, yes, so a, yes. a planet around another star somewhere and you hear that it's the size of Jupiter but it orbits the star twice a day and stuff like that. And you mm. go, how is that possible? Mm. Well, similar to these stars around this black hole, some of them have incredible speeds of, of transition around that, that centre. So they're all orbiting. Our whole galaxy is orbiting around this black hole, as is the case with all galaxies. And so but there's a whole other things that we just don't know. And this is the interesting part about the the web telescope. It'll be able to see through some of this um, this dust and tell us some of these things. So for example, there are a lot of um, relatively low mass new stars forming in this region. And you think, how can you form a new star right near a black hole? Mm. Like wouldn't you think all that gas would just be stripped away and mm. it wouldn't be able to do it? But it's happening. So we don't know we don't know why that is, which is really um which is, you know, a really interesting question. There's also this whole idea that's been going around for a long time of this sort of, you know, what's called the chicken and egg problem. So, did the black hole yes. form after our galaxy was formed for some reason because a whole of the stars clumped together or whatever, or did the galaxy form around the black hole?
1: Mm. And we just don't know. I
0: mean, this seems like a really fundamental question that you think, how do we not know this? Mm. But we don't know this with all the, you know, hundreds of millions of galaxies in the universe. Actually, that's probably a massive underestimation. <laughs> um, it's a lot more than that, but. We don't know which ones form first. Do do things clump around these black holes or are the black holes created by the galaxies themselves?
1: So you know the image of the black hole that came yeah. out yes. early yeah. this year or late last yep. year? Is that something that can be used to help us understand our own black hole, or are there so many different variations that that's well, not actually useful for us? Yeah, no.
0: So that, that gives us certain amounts of information about a, a particular black hole in a certain location in space, and so we learned we learned a lot about that. But what we what we don't know is some of the more fine detail stuff because that's a fair way away. This mm. one's a lot closer, so we want to look at. You know, it's interesting. We often know more about other galaxies than we know about our own because, of course, we're inside the fishbowl. You know, we mm. can't really see see it so clearly and it's only recently we've started to really get better um ideas of the true shape of our our Mm -hmm. galaxy you know it's easy to look up and see that the andromeda is a beautiful spiral galaxy but when you're in the galaxy Mm. it's hard to see what you look like yeah so you can't see the forest yeah you can't see the forest and there's a lot of trees um the other thing is that um there's this weird proportionality that goes on in galaxies that people don't quite understand where The mass of a galaxy's central black hole, so if you look at all the galaxies out in space and you look at the mass of the central black holes, it's somehow related, and this is a bit weird, to the total mass of the surrounding stars. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and it's like, why is that case? Now, may, may, is it a coincidence? Probably not, because the is pretty clear. But there's this relationship between them that we just don't understand.
1: So the bigger the black hole, the bigger the mass of the black hole, the bigger the mass Massive of the, the
0: surrounding stars. Well, that
1: kind of makes sense and to me. It sounds like the only space fact I've heard that ever makes sense to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get you to talk to some astro people and explain it. Um, but it's it's one of those things that's a bit unusual. So this, this Webb telescope, when it goes up, will be able to see through this dust cloud and look at that. Central black hole in more detail than we've ever seen before, which is pretty cool. I mean, the other cool thing about the web is where they're going to put it. Mm. So, they're going to put in one of these Lagrange points. So, these are points between Mm. the Earth and the Moon, where, or on the far side of the Moon, um, where basically the gravity of these two objects equals out. So, you know, the Moon's pulling you in one direction, the Earth's pulling you in another direction, and you're in the middle and you're not moving because. Oh, that's beautiful. Right? So, the problem is we can't get to it. And the other thing is it's not quite at the Lagrange point. What, what will happen with Webb is they'll put it in orbit around the Lagrange. Just. Point. And there's oh, a very, okay. very clear reason for that. If everything that goes into that Lagrange point never gets out, there's probably a whole other crap there that you don't <laughs> want to run into. right? So there could be old bits of asteroids and so forth that have accumulated in the Lagrange point region. And so you don't want to be right there because you're – Almost definitely run into some stuff. But how if you could be in orbit around the Lagrange point. Well,
1: how big is the orbit going to be? pretty small. pretty, it's pretty like small. 10Ks? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's no, no, not really that exactly.
0: But it's, no, it's not huge. It's not huge. Mm. But it's, it's, it's large enough to avoid any potential problems there. Oh. So, anyway, the Webb telescope looks like it will go up now on the 30th of March 2021. So we're getting closer. Mm-hmm. I think I said the exact same thing two or three years ago. And sorry, <laughs> mm. folks, we, you know, a delay, but it, it looks like it will, it will happen relatively soon. So, anyway, it's going to, uh, you know, we, when you think back, uh, what, 25 years ago, I think it is now, to Hubble. Yeah. It was like all of a sudden, wow, you know, yeah. this thing, especially after they fixed it. Um, but, you know, it was like, it was amazing just how much extra information we were getting about yeah. regions of space. But, web will be totally different. So, for example, you'll be able to see, remember, it sees infrared. So, you'll be able to see heat sources mm. essentially. On some of those extrasolar planets that we're we're looking at in you know far distant surrounding far distant stars, you'll be able to see the heat sources with the web so it does a very different job to what we
1: there's doing no so infrared telescopes on on the Earth's surface oh, now that's being used
0: yeah, yeah there are some they just um, but they can't do what something out in space can do okay. yeah, you know it's the same with Hubble you know as soon as you go through the atmosphere there's all sorts of problems you get and there's heat mm-hmm. sources all the way through so you want to be clear and free out in space to be able to do this and web will do that it's also a monster it's really good if you folks if you want to google something fascinating google the size comparison between the web telescope and the hubble and it's kind of like it's similar. It reminds me of the Curiosity rover versus the um, the previous rovers on on Mars, where the Curiosity one was designed to be able to drive over yes. the previous ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the the web is designed yeah. to be able to gobble up the hub. It's kind of they have to. They actually have to construct it in pieces um, because it's too large to make a single mirror. It's constructed out of many many hexagons uh, because you cannot make a single mirror that's stable that size so yeah there we go anyway fascinating stuff we're going to uh, take a break for some music and we'll be back in uh, just a few minutes with our first guest talking about some nuclear stuff from fukushima three, two, three. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein the Gogo on Three Triple R. In the studio with us now is Blake Orr. He's a senior scientist at the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency. Blake, welcome to the studio. Ah, oh, thank you very much. And now we we wanted to talk about a whole lot of the nuclear stuff today. And um, our my good colleague Bianca has put together this show for us. So a big thanks to her. She couldn't be here, um, but we in particular, I said to her, what, what would be interesting was for us to talk about things like Fukushima and what that means for Australia. And your I, I mean, agency is something that I suspect a lot of people don't know a lot about. So can you give us just a quick minute on, on what the agency does yeah. overall?
3: Yeah, sure. So I guess our panzer, uh, Australian Radiation Protection Nuclear Safety Agency, we are a Commonwealth agency. Uh, we regulate in use of radiation. So for Commonwealth agencies such as CSIRO, Defence, mm-hmm. we are sort of their regulator. That's okay. one of our main purposes. Uh, we also have another uh, a number of other roles such as writing guidance. So for state agencies, um, we interact a lot with state agencies. So when they regulate, say, hospitals, these type of activities, we kind of want harmonisation across all, mm. all the agencies. So regulation is common, so something that aren't different between states. Mm. Um, and as far as sort of in the with this show, the nuclear sort of emergency space, our uh, panzer has sort of ties in with the international community. So when there's something sort of international overseas, um, we, we have uh, agreements with different agencies and sort of international agencies that we'll give inf- get information through those sources um, and we can help to provide advice to parts of government in Australia um, to assessment so that when decisions are made, we can... We're sort of like a technical support
0: agency Mm. for those decisions. Mm. So with something like Fukushima, there was... I mean, one of the things I find amazing about that was... Everyone talks about, you know, the big disaster and so forth. But the thing I found amazing was that you... And I'll have to explain this, but you got to see the wave hit the power station, which means the power station survived the earthquake, which to me was you know just phenomenal. I mean, what exactly was the disaster there in terms of in terms of you know the nuclear scenario? That
3: yeah, so I guess if I'm sort of simplifying it, um, you're quite right. So the the earthquake, massive earthquake um, that forced the tsunami, and, and the earth, the the reactors themselves are, uh, were, were built to withstand that. Mm. They all shut down, went through their protocols. So all the reactors were turned off, um, weren't running at the time because of the emergency from the earthquake. Um, but then, as you say, the, the wave was beyond the, the seawall height, hit the yeah. reactor, um, damage to the site. Uh, and then, I guess, following on from that, the hours after that. So, so immediately after the wave hit was not necessarily things are happening right then, but it, it led to things happening because... Mm took out certain infrastructure, certain yep. systems that meant that the, the the plants could not run as the way they were designed. So over time. So that's why Fukushima kind of was something that, unlike, say, other, let's say, Chernobyl, where, where mm. it took time for the accident to progress um, mm. and dif- at, at different rates depending on the reactor. So And and we were, I guess, as an agency, we were trying to get as much information as we could from those sources, from international sources, and mm. try to feed that information back into to other parts of government. Yeah.
1: So does that mean, on the scale of nuclear disasters, it was a bestish case scenario because you had time to prepare, or was it just like watching something unfold that you couldn't stop? It, it was,
3: in the terms of the case of the scenarios, I guess it, it's rated as the second behind Chernobyl on a wow. sort of international yeah. scale. Um, so not not to that level, but certainly because of what happened as well with with the destruction from the site from the tsunami, it meant that. It was harder to implement certain systems that maybe could have assisted with recovering or stopping certain things happening as they were in the in the days mm. hours days after that so it it was a different kind I guess of accident and took longer time span. Um, but still, obviously, yeah, a, yeah. A, a nuclear disaster.
0: And and what was the release? I suppose of, of nuclear materials to the environment. What you know, Chernobyl obviously there was an explosion; it was yeah. fairly significant in terms of just that that massive, mm. sudden release of nuclear material in the area. But in in the case of Fukushima, and the thing was essentially under under seawater at this point. What what was the release?
3: Uh, so so it is a as far as magnitude, it's a different magnitude, but it's it's similar nuclides. So in the fission process, this is the essentially the process that brings you the power. So you you take uranium fuel and you send neutrons in. It fission is, fissions creates a lot of energy, mm. um, but when you're fissioning it, you have these sort of byproducts. When you split the uranium, it splits into different nuclides. Um, so those nuclides are essentially what gets released. So so out of depending on the accident, it can be different magnitudes, different types, but uh, different say, amounts, but it's generally the same sort of types. And depending on uh, the chemical form of that nuclide can depend on how much might get released. So mm. in the case of, um, say, Chernobyl, for example, you had, like a, like you said, an explosion, and, and you may have had more nuclides being released that that would generally not be released because of the high amount of explosion and, and thermal activity, whereas in Fukushima's case, there was not kind of that massive um, sort of thermal effect so you didn't have say the ones that were harder to release but still the the more common nuclides Mm. uh less volatile nuclides such as cesium and iodine these still Mm. were released into the atmosphere and that's what sort of that's what then causes the effect so
0: so so you get some of these these nuclides in the atmosphere what happens then in terms of their location their transmission their their travel because my understanding is a month or so later you guys were detecting this Mm. in darwin
3: yeah so um as part of uh i guess as as it's being released obviously in the the near field there's more being released um and general circulation patterns will will push it around the northern hemisphere Mm -hmm. it'll go around the northern hemisphere um following circulation patterns um but but we did see a small signal in darwin uh so what happens is what we saw in darwin was actual noble gas release so noble gases from a health perspective really low impact yeah. however they're used uh they don't interact with the environment they don't really deposit so they're kind of used as a tracer almost yep. um and what we found that about a month uh, yeah as you said about a month after the the event we actually started seeing some signal in our station in darwin um which we don't really see detections very often at all uh but there was multiple uh consecutive detections in darwin um and we ran scenarios to say well could this have actually been Fukushima we didn't necessarily expect it but we rang really long range um sort of forecast models um uh, and and as it turned out yeah about that month after we looked we just sort of could see a mm. small signal um and we tested that against other potential sources and really that was the only one that, oh. that sort of stood out that yes it we actually hit the signal again not any sort of health impact but these these detectors are very very sensitive mm. um but yeah, we sort of we pinned that and wrote a paper that yeah we we saw a signal. From. Interesting,
0: mm-hmm. and th- there must be other ways in which this material gets transported, you know, around the world or to Australia in particular, which is our area of interest here. Uh, I assume shipping, uh, transport of goods, migratory the ocean, species, too. ocean circulation. Ocean mm-hmm. circulation. I mean, I mean,
3: yeah, yeah. You- so, so there's a few different ways, and I guess that's where my agency our pans. We sort of were looking at all the different different ways and sort of wanting to sort of. Mm, inform the public about what the potentials could be, make sure there was no health effects um so yeah there's the the atmospheric is probably puts it around there the quickest um then you have the ocean circulation, so there was um fallout into the ocean there was some and mm. to the o- leaking into the ocean so after a number of years, actually global sort of ocean patterns sort of predicted that we might get some small signal sort of to the northern part of western Australia around five six years after the mm-hmm. event um and so we started to implement a program of testing a bit of water around there, testing some food, some fish around there to see if we could see the signal. But at that time, we didn't see anything mm. or below detection limits. So that's very good for us. Yeah. Um, and we still implement a bit of a program to do that. So we're still looking at fish products. We still um, do water samples from time to time out there, but we haven't seen anything that could pin us back to the to the Fukushima um, signal. So mm. again, it was predicted with that long-term circulation that, that the amount that might be in the Australian waters would be very low and would be sort of on the cusp of whether it would be detectable or not. Mm. So sort but, of turned but out... But presumably
0: really. when you, you add that information to, as you said, some of the other agencies in various other countries around the world, you can map the full distribution of the Fukushima material over time around the world. And our data point is an important data point. Yeah, so,
3: I mean, there have been a lot of international programs looking at that. Um, in particular, sort of, I guess, the US got sort of some of the signal reasonably soon. And, and there have been sort of a lot of those programs looking at, well, what can the signal be? Um, and so, like you said, our data point adds to that. E- even even a non-detect is still mm. important yeah. um, to sort of – you look – when you run these systems, you're always using models to, to run the systems. And you always want to validate and verify if are your models accurate. So, mm. all, all this data adds adds to, to those systems. So. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, our pans are a regulatory body. If if the situation had been, you know, bucket loads worse and you detected, you know, dangerous levels of something in, in the water, for example, and I'm thinking especially commercial fisheries, what what happens next? Do you sort of turn around and go, okay, stop, you can't do anything here? What, or, or is there a, a different process?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I guess uh, it, it would be similar to what, what sort of happened outside Japan, outside that area where uh-huh. the Japanese government sort of put a... Put a sp- well, an area around the, the plant where they said, you know, no one w- should really be fishing around there. So it would really be a very similar process. We'd interact with other government agencies, mm-hmm. the Department of Fisheries, um, and maybe food standards to, to say, yeah. well, this sort of area here, we're looking at actually it's contaminated to the level where we don't want people eating sure. Uh, sure. or going mm-hmm. to those areas. So, so it would be all part of, uh, you know, like I said, adding that information mm. to, to other government agencies to, to inform, to make those decisions. Cool.
1: But not all fish just stay in the same little bit of ocean. I mean, there's lots of other... (laughs) Very
2: inconvenient of them. (laughs)
1: Very inconvenient of them to want to travel in so many different dimensions. You know, different fish move around a lot and also what they eat and those kinds of things. Do you have to be in control of that modelling as well, of different wildlife movements?
3: Yes, that's a very good question. So, um, yeah, I guess when we look at the different fish that were being caught. And um, we were mostly, uh, like I said, focusing on the area where there may have been. Um, But we have done some other studies since then to look at a general food diet. And actually, we're going to publish something reasonably soon about general radioactivity in food. Um, But you're quite right, as in, we looked at different types of food because some uh, eat on other, you know, seafood, Mm. other parts or sediment or different things. So you're right. I mean, we we wanted to get sort of a suite of different um, fish that, that that were in those areas to see, well, was there much difference in ones that are sort of eat other fish or other parts of uh, other seafood versus just ones Mm. that are sort of in the ocean. So, yeah. Yeah just to get that sort of sweet, But you're quite right that, yeah, you have to sort of try and take that into yeah. account.
0: And, Blake, before we let you go, I wanted to come back to um, the sort of area you spoke about just briefly at the start, which was around you know, our hospitals use um, material that's radioactive and that's produced in Australia. Mm. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Because I think we, we, we could caught up in, you know, the nuclear disaster mm. stuff. But, I mean, in fact, the very reason our biology is the way it is at the moment, you know, and we've evolved is partly due to, you know, some of the damage we get uh, to our DNA, you know, and that's that's part of evolution. You know, so we need radiation in the world for a variety of reasons, but in Australia, I mean, in other countries, we use it in our hospital systems quite quite effectively.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, so, so just to put it in perspective, I mean, we get a natural dose of radiation every year um, just mm. from cosmic radiation from the sky, from the yep. terrestrial radiation from the ground, and, you know, nuclear medicine, radiation therapy is a very common source of, um, you know, in our medical system. So, uh, whether it be for imaging or for cancer treatments, um, radiation is an integral part of that whole system. So it's obviously when you're talking about in the medical sector, doses are very well justified. A dose that you might get as part of a medical treatment is not something you should just give to someone who's walking down the street. You know, it's very yeah. well justified. Um, but it forms an integral part. Uh, for example, the uh, just to put it in perspective, I guess back to Fukushima, one uh, area that they're concerned about when there's a release happening is that, that there's one of the nuclides called iodine that can get out. Mm. It's a very short-lived uh, yep. isotope, but if you sort of ingest it, inhale it, it can sort of concentrate in your thyroid. So yep. um, that's one where they might put in something to sort of limit that during an emergency. But that is actually the treatment for iodine therapy can be actually you ingest radi- radioactive mm. iodine to yep. sort of ablate the the the, the thyroid organ if it's had a cancer or something. So mm. So at the mm. same time, you have sort of the... Almost the, the good it. and the bad yeah, of it yeah. in the same way that you don't want to produce, give a dose to produce it, but it is actually yeah. also used as sort of a, a therapy. Um, yeah. and, and obviously, the, it's all very well tightly controlled and regulated, but
0: it's sort mm. of, like I said, the, the, the pros and the cons of it. Interesting. Uh, just finally, do you avoid CT scans yourself?
3: Ah. Uh, I'm trying to think about if I had I C I don't know. I don't avoid them. I'm trying to think when I might have had my last CT scan, but no, not yeah, but you, not as a general uh,
0: practice. But you must you must have that sort of innate knowledge of one CT scan e- e- <laughs> right, yes, X, X uh, of whatever. X rays yeah. and equaling <laughs> X sort of flights internationally and you know, having that all in your head must uh, must be fun. Yeah, yeah,
3: we get we get um a, a few um we get a few questions from the public from time to time along yeah. those sort of lines. So no, I mean the CT scans are very well justified. Um uh, procedure to have, but yeah. you're right. I mean, it, it, it is sort of tend to be at the higher end compared to just a normal yeah. X-ray. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously when we we always go back to almost like the scientific. Oh, what dose was it? What you know, how about yeah, you? that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, so you're yeah. right. I mean, you can't sort of help to do yeah. that.
0: It's not that five a year, but when you need them. When you need them, very you need them. That's exactly, exactly exactly. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, Blake, that's uh, that's been great talking to you. We're going to talk to you with one of your colleagues in just a few minutes. But thanks so much for chatting to us. Ah, it's you. been great. Yeah. Right. Thank you very much, folks. We're going to take a break for some music and important announcements, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Three, Three. 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 There you are. Listening to Triple R Science Done Go. It's a science show. If you haven't worked it out quickly change channels. Uh, No, please don't do that. In the studio with us now is Megan Cook. She's a PhD researcher and science officer at the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, an agency we've just become very aware of thanks to your colleague, <laughs> Megan. Welcome to the studio.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you in. Now, you, you're doing a lot of work in sort of the monitoring and uh, of, of nuclear sources and so forth and what we yeah. see here. But one of the things I found really interesting, what you sent through, is this idea of um, long-term behaviour of these hot particles. Mm-hmm. What do you yep. mean by hot particles?
4: Uh, okay. So these are one of my favourite things in all of the research that I do. I've kind of fallen in love with them a little bit. Uh, so hot Hot particles are actually created when a nuclear detonation goes off and you know that uh, quintessential mushroom cloud sort mm-hmm. of image, right? Yeah. So yeah. the heat and the intense energy that is in that mushroom cloud actually melts the soil or the environment that is around uh, that detonation point. Yep. And so those hot particles are actually like molten sand as well as the nuclear material, the plutonium and the uranium. Oh. And they're really small, but they're uh, in terms of health effects, they're incredibly dangerous.
0: So, so we mean hot in terms of nuclear output as Correct. opposed to heat. Yes. Yep. Yep. And, and what sort of so, so what sort of nuclear isotopes do you find in these materials?
4: Well, they're mainly the isotopes that are in the actual uh, bomb itself mm-hmm. that was tested. Yep. So that's uh, plutonium isotopes and uranium isotopes mostly. There are also other um, sort of what's caused by the detonation, sort of daughter isotopes and things that come out of that. But the main ones that I have been looking at is the plutonium and the uranium.
0: And when you have one of those nuclear blasts with that output, how long do they last, those isotopes?
4: Essentially forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: not, not quite, there isn't. It's hundreds of thousands of years. It right? is, yeah. yes,
4: yes, definitely. So, um, And they become part of the environment and so they transport themselves around with the natural processes. Uh, and so the main reason that I want to look at them is that the health effects of you know actually just being in the area, they don't contribute a lot to that. Right. But what they do contribute to is a long-term sort of uh, leaching and, and releasing of, of that nuclear material. Yeah. And so then that means that that could pose more of a threat later on Mm. as it goes.
1: So I remember growing up and doing uh, a project when I was in primary school about the nuclear testing by the French in the Pacific. Mm. Is that something that is a bit of a... And also we had nuclear testing, of course, in inland Australia, right? We mm-hmm. yeah, we did. You we know, did. 50, 60 mm-hmm. years ago. Are these case studies used extensively now to monitor how these things are behaving and changing?
4: Oh, absolutely, yeah. So uh, scientists, we love data. So, Don't have to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the more that we can get, the more we learn from these sites, the better we are going to be able to protect ourselves now. So, yeah, we've just taken all of those um, different you know, scenarios and all of the unique aspects of all of them because they are all different and being able to apply them to, you know, site-specific protection. So that's what I'm doing for Australia.
0: And, and, and with something like, like the tests in Australia, how, mu- how much does that material move around? I mean, it was, you know, these... these, these bombs are dropped in a kilometre range, you know, they're mm-hmm. relatively small. You know, a lot of the test ones were re- – you know, some of them were small. The ones yep. in the French adults no, were, were no, no, no. monstrous. So <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of these were very small. So mm-hmm. at the time of, of detonation, the contamination range would have been sub-10 kilometres. Yes. If you look now, mm-hmm. how how much further do you find the materials?
4: Well, uh, I actually did a, a – s- m- part of my study was to look at it a long range. So I actually analysed some soil in Queensland. Right. Um, and you can see – extremely trace amounts like i had to work really hard to find it but it's there you can still see it um so it's sort of that's kind of the way that i wanted to look at the bigger picture because there's been a lot of study done on you know that that Sub 10 kilometer range. Yep, yep, and I yep, was like, well, what else happened though? There's a lot more than happened than just that. So that's kind of where I've gone.
0: Yeah. And in terms of the, the safety of these materials, there's still locations in Australia where it would be deemed unsafe for you to, you know, hang out or build a house or <laughs> live? Well, plant
4: some carrots. <laughs> yeah. mm, mm. So in. The actual Maralinga nuclear test site yep. and the Montebello's uh, test site are off Western Australia. Uh, there are restrictions on how long you can stay there. Um, okay. Maralinga has actually been given back to the traditional owners. Um, a panzer is doing a lot to After work with them. After we
0: wrecked it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well,
4: we, didn't, we didn't ask in the first place. So yeah, right. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. It's kinda, um, <laughs> you can have this back. It's, uh, it's slightly contaminated. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Nothing you can see.
4: But that's the the wonderful thing about a panzer is that we have worked really hard to do a lot of clean-up and a lot of analysis. Even, you know, continuing on, we will go out there and make sure that it's still safe. Mm. So
2: So when you say clean-up, Mm. what do you do? Do you remove things and where do you put them?
4: Yeah, so um, this isn't specifically my area of work. We have um, colleagues of mine that do this, but basically what they're looking at doing is finding the the areas that are really hot, so hot in terms of nuclear, um, and taking it, so like uh, bits of metal and bits of concrete and stuff like that, and um, putting it uh, in a safe, uh, you know, reposit so that it can't affect the environment. And basically best practice for that at the moment is to um, trench it.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. So, yeah, yep. in Australia,
4: like, uh, some of that is in Australia for okay. Maralinga specifically, yep. but it's a very, very small area. Sure. Whereas you know, um, there's the US has a very different way of uh, doing something similar, but there's a lot larger. I imagine yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, I know
1: some of your work at UpHansa is about emergency response. Yes. We're talking about events that have happened and mm-hmm. tests where mm. there is a lot of uh, fallout. I'm sure that's not the best word for it. No, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, there is a lot of waste that needs to be dealt with. But do you also assess future potential emergencies within Australia or, or nearby? You know, it's not just yeah. Japan. Are there other places close to us where we that you need to be watching out for?
4: Well, uh, in Australia specifically, so this is this is my main role uh, in a, a panzer, is that we're looking at the areas in Australia that could possibly, even at the smallest chance, have a risk of causing some sort of, um, you know, damage or danger to the Australian people or the environment. And so that means that um, for us it's nuclear-powered warship ports yep. um, and the ANSTO um, research reactor in Sydney. yeah. So that's kind of our main focus is making sure that, no matter what's happening in those areas, we have some sort of uh, prediction to know. Well, if this were to happen, we would definitely do like ABC to protect it. Oh, everybody. wow. Okay. So,
0: so, just just to clarify those two options. So, hmm. at Anstow, that's where all our medical radioisotopes are produced. Correct. Yep. Right? So, there's, a, there's obviously a reactor there that's yes, producing there them, a nuclear reactor that's producing them, but it doesn't produce electricity. No, sense, it's not a power, not a power reactor. Only, yeah. And when you talk about nuclear vessels, we mm-hmm. so we don't have those. So we're talking mm-hmm. about visiting nations yes. coming in with their, their big, disgusting, dirty <laughs> nuclear <laughs> aircraft carriers that look awesome, but yeah, and, and, and what exactly so, so when that happens, I mean when the <laughs> you know, often, you know, the US fleet or whoever NATO comes in and they, they park their vessels in our bays, yes. what exactly do you do in terms of monitoring?
4: So at the moment, this is a bit of a baby project for me. This mm. is, you know, um, I love it. So we've actually, it's the first time it's been done in Australia. Um, Europeans do it really well. We've learned from them. But we have uh, gamma dose rate monitors. And so those monitors we've put out into the ports. And they, they're actually uh, really self-sustaining. We can put them out there for 10 years and not touch them. Wow. And they send data back real time. So they've got their own um, power source with a little solar panel. And they sit there and we get real-time data uh, every hour. So at 10 minute, it takes a 10 Minute measurement and every hour it sends that data back. So no matter what's happening in those areas, we know like every hour of every day.
0: That's awesome.
2: Yeah. And if, if we do have a massive, great nuclear-powered vessel visiting, <laughs> do you expect to see a certain level of um, of reading from those, or do you expect to see nothing?
4: We see no change from what is normal background levels Um, because obviously they know what they're doing. Yeah, 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 sure. So there
0: aren't US soldiers getting off and and, and each one has a bit of a... (laughs)
4: Just glowing. (laughs) A certain aura.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're hot. They're all hot. But how
2: many of
4: these nuclear-powered war vessels are we talking? Does this happen... Every month? There's thousands around the world, right? There are thousands around the world. But for Australia, there are certain exercises that different countries do out in the Pacific and and, and all over the world, actually. And so Australia's in a really good spot where Mm. um, they come in for a respite for some shore leave. And so that's kind of uh, the the visits don't happen um, super regularly. You know, we've had two this year. Um, so yeah, it's just sort of surely for them and they come in and hang out and it's good for, you know, the Australian economy and everything as well. So while they're doing that, we just make sure that the Australian people and the environment is safe
0: now my understanding from what you sent through and correct me if i'm wrong here but Mm. some of this data is going to be available to the australian public in real time it is so tell us about that
4: i'm really excited about this because i think that that sort of you know openness and transparency is really important for the australian public so uh we're in the final throes of the project at the moment just making sure all the quality and stuff is going to be spot on so that the data that the public sees is absolutely the best um so what we're going to actually have is on the epanzer website have that data available um real time so that anyone can log on and see it they can then ask us questions so we actually have uh talk to a scientist program and on tuesdays and thursdays uh from 11 till 12:30, the public can call a and talk to you know, any scientists like Blake or myself and um, ask us any questions that they want to ask.
0: That is so cool. Yeah, Yeah. I'm going to ring up and ask about Mr Fusion from Back to the Future. Do it. (laughs) 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 That's great.
1: Megan, I want to know about your emergency planning, like thinking back to the ANSTO reactor. Mm -hmm. So if there was some disaster that happened there, Mm -hmm. how many folders have you got you know (laughs) is it about like Mm. this is the season so the weather is in this direction or this is how much water is in the subsurface so this is where things are going to leach or how many people are there what's going on like
4: how, yeah, it, how prepared? The complexity, are you? right? Yeah. 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 So basically, ANSTO is sort of a separate beast because uh, a Panzo is the regulator for ANSTO. So ANSTO will take care of them, themselves, their staff on site. Um, a Panzer's role is then to look at the environment and the surrounding area to protect the public and the environment. So we have uh, lots of monitoring equipments. We have teams that are ready to deploy, um, mm-hmm. you know, 24 uh, 7 to grab all of our kit, go out and take all of these measurements. Uh, Again, and make sure that we're getting real-time data as quickly as possible so that we can make those decisions and we can provide that to uh, our CEO, to the Prime Minister and make sure that all of the right choices are being made yeah. to protect us. And to emergency services as well, if required, or is that something
1: that our panzer does?
4: Oh, absolutely not. No, I, I would be talking to I won't be running in, <laughs> you know, arms blazing. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I will be the subject matter expert that is, you know, going to help those first responders to, one, keep themselves safe and two, get the best data for us. Yeah.
0: And you, and so you're on call right now. I mean, you, I think I you're the first guest in 27 years I've let have their phone on. I <laughs> mm-hmm. on call for like, what sort of calls would you get?
4: So most of the calls are surrounded, like, uh, sort of public inquiries, or you know, from right. our state and territory partners, um, inquiries that they've had from the public, just asking for our advice. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Sort of,
1: from. my child just ate a glow stick. Should I be worried? Or no, a little bit like more I'm, serious? I'm than thinking
0: that? of building the house. I'm not sure if I should go weatherboard bore the brick. And I heard about radon. <laughs> mm. Is radon gas a problem?
4: <laughs> that... Well, that's you know, you're not far off yeah, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that would happen oh, and we, we, we would, used to get it here too oh great yes <laughs> yeah. so we would just point them in the right direction to make sure they can get the information that they need we're not the experts uh, in all things but we are sort of just the touch point to be mm. like well this is what you're asking you need to talk to this person yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, look it's fantastic it's really interesting megan thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us because it's um it, it's a whole area we've just explored today we, we weren't aware of just what this agency <laughs> was doing and it's just fascinating to hear about how much work is actually going on because oh, i suppose yeah. in australia we don't think of ourselves as in a an, a nucleus sort of regime but we no. are and oh, we're absolutely. exposed to it. Mm-hmm. The ship's coming in and we used to be a test site and we produce our own radioactive isotopes for medicine. That's it. All of these things. Yeah. So great talking to you. Um, good luck with the, the work and the research. Oh, and thank um you so much. yeah we hope uh, we hope you don't get any calls that are really problematic. <laughs> but um, I'm sure <laughs> Lyndon will call you later but yeah, well, go. <laughs> I got a few extra questions I'd like to <laughs> ask. <laughs> Thanks so much. Regan. We're gonna take a very short break folks and we'll be back in just a moment. Three. Uh, Chris K.P.'s got an important message, but I might say after this show today, both me and my thyroid feel a lot more comfortable. <laughs> so,
1: I need to figure out I need to do some research about radon and weatherboard replacement
0: after you say that. Yeah, well, well bricks, most most Earth gives out radon gas, and, mm. and it's not a problem unless it's closed up for very, very long periods of time. It's and like ventilation then, matters. Yeah, then then it can be a problem if you never open your doors. But I'm not sure how big a problem, though. I actually don't have a feel for that, but I know it's something that's been discussed. So, mm-hmm. Chris K.P., you have an important message.
2: I do, I do. Our, um, our friend and colleague, Dr. Jeff, has alerted us to an important opportunity for people. Now, obviously, listeners to this program are probably aware that the 11th World Congress on Developmental Origins of health and disease is already coming up soon, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, The really exciting news, though, is that there is, in fact, a free public forum as part of this, um, titled Adolescents Investing in Future Generations. Um, This is a free public forum, as I said, which will be happening at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre on Monday, the 21st of October. Please don't call. We don't have free tickets, because it's already free. (laughs) Um, However, things you should note are that the event will be hosted by ABC journalist and former newsreader Ian Henderson, um, joined by a panel of youth leaders and leading scientists if you want to go i recommend it to you but you need to register at future hyphen gen.com.au um, and then basically you're in 21st of october okay
0: go. sounds good thanks jeff for sending that through to us uh had coffee with jeff day. he's doing well down there at deacon excellent it's a shame that he doesn't you know can't come up every sunday anymore but uh it's nice to see he's doing well with all his twin Agreed. twin work and epigenetics mm-hmm. I had mm. never heard the term before he mentioned it. Anyway, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Edit. Dr. Linden. great to see you. Thanks Always for a pleasure, in. Dr. Shane. And Chris K.P. Good um, to be here. Yeah, it was okay to see you too. Yeah, it's a relief. It's nearly <laughs> over. It's almost <laughs> over. Um, I'm Dr. Shane. Folks, remember, science is everywhere. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we will chat to you again next week. Three, triple.